Yeah, it's, it's good to, that we have a big group here today. Uh, last month, it seems to me, we had really bad weather, so we only had a handful of people. Um, before I, I resume talking about uh, the, the woman at the well, uh, I wanted to say a little more about baptism. I referred to this in my homily today. And uh, when I was a, a novice back in uh, 1998, one of the first things that the novice master gave me to read was a, a talk by Pope John Paul II uh, entitled, Do You Know What Your Baptism Does For You? And uh, it was a good thing to read because even though I'm a cradle Catholic and I went to Catholic school all but two years of my, my uh, primary education, um, I, I didn't really know entirely what my baptism did for me. I mean, I knew you know, you have to get baptized and all that. But um, the concept, for example, of divinization and illumination was not one that I was taught in Catholic schools growing up. Um, and once you understand the centrality of baptism, it's essentially saying the same thing as saying that, you know, the centrality, the central theme of the New Testament is the, the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? That's, that's the good news. That God has taken human form and he's joined us in death so that we can join him in everlasting life. That's the good news. And this is what baptism does for us. It makes us a part of that story. Um, but more than that, again, it's not simply that we're going to be born again and live the same old life. We're going to live a new kind of life, a spiritual life. Uh, we receive the Holy Spirit as the final seal on our baptismal grace uh, in, in confirmation. I went through, you know, confirmation classes and I, uh, I, I'm not sure, you know, I was 16. I'm not sure I was paying attention very well. But uh, uh, this, of course, I, you know, entering a monastery, I was very much full of zeal to understand the, the faith at a deeper level than I had experienced it before. So this uh, article was very helpful. Once you recognize the centrality of baptism, you start to see it everywhere. And so when we began talking about John's gospel, I read the prologue and you have uh, uh, lines like this. Uh, the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. And if, if you... Uh, don't understand that enlightenment is a reference to baptism, it can be a kind of Gnostic sounding thing. Okay, so Jesus just came to teach us, to enlighten us by teaching. But in fact, this, it's true he gives us teaching, but the teaching sort of takes root and takes hold and grows in us because of baptism. Because in baptism, we are conformed to his likeness. Uh, we are cleansed from sin. And so we can begin uh, growing in this new way. Another example of this, which um, I, I stumbled upon a few years ago, you probably heard me talk about this. My, uh, my master's thesis was on uh, some sections from the book, uh, the letter to the Romans. And uh, you know how these things go. When I started working on it, I thought I was going to write on the letter to the Romans. And then it was like the first half of the letter to the Romans. And then it was like a couple verses here and there from the letter to the Romans because when you write a thesis, the verbiage just keeps expanding and expanding. But uh, I, one of the things I, I came to realize through this study and um, uh, meditation on God's word is that when St. Paul, at the beginning of the letter to the Romans, he says um, that uh, through Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And lots of scholars uh, get, argue and argue and argue. What is the obedience of faith exactly? What does that mean? Uh, well, I'm here to tell you, this is my thesis. You, you can, there's nothing unorthodox about it, but uh, you won't find it in contemporary scholarly literature. It's baptism. What are the apostles sent out to do in the Great Commission? They're sent out to baptize. And what is baptism? It's the sacrament of faith. And so what happens in baptism, we pledge ourselves to renounce evil and to obey God. <laughs> the obedience of faith. I have been uh, inducted into God's army now. I'm, I'm fighting on the side of good. I have to change my life. I have to be born anew. All of these things. And uh, so St. Paul is referring to this, but um, 
usually, again, it's talked about in, the, in a kind of Protestant context where faith is opposed to works. And so obedience of faith, it's sort of, it's like on Star Trek when Captain Kirk talks computers to, and they blow up because they, don't, they can't process a contradiction. How can you have obedience of faith? You either have faith or you have works, right? No, actually, uh, what we're talking about is baptism. It just doesn't end round around uh, all of those questions. So uh, this has been a principal theme throughout the first several chapters of John's gospel. It was a major theme in the story of Nicodemus that we looked at last time. And now with the woman uh, of Samaria, uh, Jesus promises living water. And this is living water. Uh, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst uh, no more. Uh, He contrasts this to bodily water. So she has to keep coming out to get water from this well. It's not a pleasant thing to do at noon in the Holy Land. How many, how many of you have been to the Holy Land? I know, yeah, great. So you, and if you've been there during uh, uh, spring, summer, it's probably pretty warm most of the time. And um, what is it, only madmen and Englishmen go out in the sun at noon? <laughs> this is when this, this poor woman is trying to hide from everybody probably. So, uh, but she can't hide from Jesus and he meets her there. And uh, she's curious about this. Well, gosh, what is this water that you can give me? I won't have to come out here to draw water all the time because this is, you know, it's a lot of work. And um, what Jesus is referring to, again, he's making this contrast between the old way of thinking, which is fleshly, materialistic, um, part of this world, and this new enlightened point of view in the Holy Spirit, which is uh, the gift of grace in the Holy Spirit. This living water, uh, not only is uh, this, this phrase living water is another pun in John's gospel because it can just mean running water, fresh water, as opposed to stagnant water in a pool. Uh, but he means living literally. Uh, so literally uh, the water of baptism, which gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so one, once one is given of the Holy Spirit, one has nothing left to thirst for. Uh, so she says, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And this is, uh, we touched on this last time. Uh, our Lord is, uh, Romano Gardini wrote a great book uh, on the human nature of Christ. Um, it's not very well known, but I, I found it really interesting because it, it confirms something. I just, one of the things I love about reading the gospels is that uh, our Lord is, uh, his personality is unlike any other character in, in any literature. It's hard to say exactly why. Guardini spends a whole book trying to explain uh, how Jesus, the man, the, hum- the human being, uh, has this particular quality about him that uh, is it's different than Buddha. It's different than John the Baptist. It's different than Isaiah the prophet or whoever else you can think of. And uh, he's, he's constantly, I, I would say, wrong-footing us. You know, just when we think, you know, the Pharisees got him with a great question, he somehow sees completely through the question and get, just changes the topic in a way that, in retrospect, makes more sense than the question. <laughs> uh, so he has this insight, and it's unlikely to me that the, the evangelists could have made up this character, you know? So this is one of those instances. So... She asks a question, uh, you know, or, or makes a request. Can you give me this water, sir? And it's like, he just keeps going. He doesn't, it's not that he doesn't pay attention. He wants to give this water, but he says, go and call your husband. Uh, and, uh, you know, so this is the, before, it's what I was saying in my homily this morning, you know, to, to make the most of baptism, we have to be really honest about ourselves. And uh, her situation is, is a bit tricky. Uh, she's had five husbands, and she's living with someone who's not her husband. And uh, as I mentioned last time, this is both, uh, I think, intended by John to be a literal truth, but also a symbol of the uh, apostasy of Samaria. So Samaria, uh, historically, was uh, a Jewish, uh, well, Jewish Israelite. It was an Israelite nation. Uh, for political reasons, it was separated off from Judah, 
uh, in around 900 BC or so, let's say. And then it was conquered by Assyria in 721 BC. And the Assyrians, like lots of conquering uh, peoples in the ancient world, one of the ways they brought the people under control was to move everybody around so that they didn't have connection with the soil anymore. Um, and this it meant introducing settlers into Samaria who were not Israelites. And it meant bringing in all kinds of foreign cults. And so there were still Israelites in Samaria who read the Pentateuch. They still had a temple where they offered <coughs> sacrifices according to Leviticus, but it was considered an apostate temple, okay? And uh, these five husbands uh, that this woman has symbolize the foreign gods who've been brought into the cult. And the husband she currently has means uh, she's, she, as a symbol of Samaria, is separated off from the true God who should be her husband, okay? Her real husband, she's estranged from him, okay? So this is both literal and symbolic. And uh, once she recognizes that Jesus is a prophet, you remember in today's gospel, the man born blind first identifies Jesus as a prophet. And only later on does he come to see, oh, wait a minute, he's the son of man. He's the Messiah. Similar thing with this uh, woman at the well. She, she says, oh, I see you're a prophet. Obviously, uh, you have special knowledge because you know about my life and I didn't tell you. And um, so she figures, all right, so I don't have anything to hide. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We have a, di we, we have a disagreement. We say that you should sacrifice here in Samaria on the, on, uh, the mount where the temple was there. You say sacrifice should be at Zion and Jerusalem. Who's right? And Jesus says again, he doesn't answer the question. Uh, he says the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, there isn't a difference between Judah and Samaria. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Uh, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for such the father seeks to worship him. So um, I want to build again on something I said in my homily and I wasn't writing the homily to do this. It's just John's theology is so consistent, it's easy enough to, to make these connections. Uh, again, our baptism, our obedience of faith, the new life we've received implies a new cult, as we would say in, in sort of comparative religious terms, a new form of worship. The old sacrificial system is being replaced. That doesn't mean that we don't offer sacrifice, but now the new way of worshiping is the church's liturgy with its high point of uh, the sacrifice of the Eucharist. Uh, but this is a spiritual sacrifice. This is, um, this is not um, the, the old system of where you have to redo the sacrifices over and over and over again. Uh, it's, it's a sacrifice once and for all. So God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's to say in the Holy Spirit and in Christ. And to do that, we have to be baptized, right? We have to be a part of the body of the church. Uh, this is why, you know, in an older time, uh, well, it's still the case, but, uh, uh, you know, when the catechumens are eligible to come for the liturgy of the word, the opening part, but when the mysteries come, when the sacrifice begins, they have to leave because they're not baptized yet. And only after you're baptized can you approach the sacred mysteries because you, you've been enlightened as to what they really mean. Before that, uh, it's, it's harder for us to see because we just sort of open up the church doors to anybody and anybody can sit through mass if they want to. Um, but, but really they shouldn't present themselves for communion unless they're baptized into the church. Uh, and we, we have additional disciplines for the Eucharist today too. But this idea that we must worship the Father in spirit and truth, again, implies baptism. Uh, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. And then Jesus has the big reveal. I who speak to you am he. So, uh, he has 
brought this woman from a position of antagonism as a Samaritan versus a Jew to a place of faith and belief in Christ as the Messiah. And it's just at this moment that his disciples return and uh, the woman leaves and uh, goes away to the city. She leaves her water jar. It's a little bit like the apostles leaving their boats, you know. It's like she doesn't need this water anymore. <laughs> she's got more important things to worry about. Um, she's, she goes away into the city and says to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Uh, and so she, she becomes an apostle, as it were. And uh, she brings a number of people back with her while he's talking with his disciples. And the disciples uh, say to him, Rabbi, eat. And he says to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And the disciples say to one another, has anyone brought him food? Uh, so I was thinking my homily, uh, Mark's gospel, John's gospel. They both like to make good use of misunderstandings and paradoxes. Um, uh, so when Jesus says, I have food to eat of which you do not know, uh, it's a little bit like when he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees in Mark's gospel, and they say, aha, it's because we forgot to bring bread, right? So uh, they, they get it wrong. They're thinking in a fleshly way. They're thinking in a literal way and not in a spiritual way. So uh, this mistake that they make is an opportunity for our Lord to enlighten them, to again bring them to a deeper faith, and Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So this food, uh, they didn't know what it was before, but now they know it's to do God's will. Now I was thinking about that this morning with regard to the Eucharist. So if, if I'm going to stress the importance of baptism, it's important also to understand the, the function of the Eucharist in, uh, in this new life that we have. Again, we often speak of the Eucharist as uh, it's a bit like the manna, which is a nice uh, symbol or type of the Eucharist because it, it sustains the people of God as they are going out of Egypt toward the Holy Land, toward uh, God's land, as it were. So we are also, when we're baptized, we don't enter in on the kingdom of God in its fullness immediately. We begin this dynamic process. Uh, I use this term supernatural organism this morning in my homily. That's uh, uh, Jordan Allman, a Dominican uh, spiritual theologian, uses this terminology in his books. And uh, so like any organism, uh, we grow in spiritual life. We grow in understanding. We grow in holiness. We grow in love of God and love of neighbor, etc. Um, to grow, we need food. <laughs> we need food. The, in the end, the real food, our existence depends on God. God is who sustains us. It's in that relationship with God that we receive what we need to grow in holiness. He gives us while we're pilgrimaging. And so eventually, you know, when we're the kingdom of God is revealed in its fullness at the end of time. Uh, the beatific vision, uh, to use uh, scholastic terminology now, uh, that means receiving directly from God and a vision from God everything we need to live and grow and, and become more and more who we are. In the meantime, we live in the time of sacraments. We live in the time of symbols that uh, convey the reality so in the Eucharist, Christ is really present and we really feed on him. We really feed on God. Uh, we, we enter into this direct relationship with God, the Father through the Son. Uh, but in heaven, we won't need this bodily food anymore because there'll be direct, uh, we'll directly feed on God the way Jesus does or speaks about it here. Uh, so then uh, he illuminates what's going on with the Samaritans here. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for the harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. 
Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So this is a nice reference, uh, I think, to the law and the prophets. Um, those who have worked to uh, maintain, purify the faith that the people of Israel had in God. And uh, now the apostles are ready to gather up the fruit, which is to say, baptize and, and bring in the harvest, bring in souls into God's kingdom. Um, again, another saying of our Lord's that's, that doesn't appear in the synoptics, but it's very, very close. All right, so the Samaritans have been off stage. Here they come. And uh, the woman's testimony was so strong that a number of them believed that Jesus was uh, at least a prophet. Perhaps they even believe he's the Messiah. They come and they ask him to stay with them. And he actually stays in Samaria for two days. And uh, many more come to believe in him. And uh, we know, they say, we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. This is really remarkable and it foreshadows uh, the uh, reception of the good news by the Gentiles, by the, the non-Jews. Uh, one of the mysteries that's revealed in the New Testament is that God comes to save the entire world. Salvation comes from the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. Uh, I like to point out in our church, uh, with the exception of uh, some people in the window here with Pius IX and the, the wise men up in the window over here, uh, everybody in the windows is Jewish. Okay, so salvation is from the Jews. But there's this mystery that uh, in, in many cases, uh, when the gospel is preached, uh, it's those who don't know God who receive this good news more readily. Uh, and this is, if you want a, a really profound meditation on this mystery, you can go back to Romans chapters 9 to 11, where Paul wrestles with this problem that, that he encountered. But in any case, the Samaritans are ready to believe. This is quite remarkable. And you, you may remember in Acts of the Apostles, one of the first places the gospels preached outside of Judea is in Samaria. Uh, so this preparation has already been done there. So after two days, he departed to Galilee. Jesus uh, himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Uh, so when he came to Galilee, that's where he's from, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so he came again to Cana and uh, finds out that at Capernaum, there's an official who has a son who's ill. And so the, the official comes down from Judea to Galilee and asks Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says something that we should uh, listen to carefully here. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So this is another theme that uh, uh, Jesus develops throughout his ministry. Uh, it, it's not necessarily bad to believe because of signs, but to insist that God give us a sign uh, other than the signs he's already given us, because that, that's part of the context here is we've got lots of signs. We've got the scriptures, you know, we've got Moses and the prophets, Right? And uh, this is from the story of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. Right? When the rich man dies and goes to Gehenna, he says, yeah, send Lazarus to tell my brothers, warn them that this doesn't happen. And uh, Abraham says, well, what about Moses and the prophets? Right? Ah, but if you make if you, a sign, you know, somebody rising from the dead, that'll win them over, right? That'll prove it. And he says, maybe not. You know, if, 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 if you don't take to heart what Moses and the prophets have to say, um, you might not believe in a person risen from the dead, right? Uh, so, now, the official, though, gives us a good example of how to respond. He says, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not about a sign. Uh, it's about my son. <laughs> Please come down before my child dies, he says. And so... Jesus, after testing his faith, uh, says, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, right? So as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was living. And uh, so he asked them the hour when he began to mend. And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, 
And that was exactly the moment when Jesus said, your son will live. This is the second sign that Jesus works, okay? So there, I mentioned, generally speaking, we uh, scholars say there are seven signs that Jesus works in the first half of John's gospel. Uh, and this is the second. The first one was the uh, changing of water into wine. And these signs are all uh, to help us see, to help us see the spiritual reality that's coming into our physical world. Uh, this, this healing from inside. So this healing of the man's son at Jesus' word uh, is this second sign. All right, chapter five. The man uh, by the pool. I like this guy. <laughs> I, probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't get along with him if we had to spend time together because he's a little bit of a complainer. Um, but I, I like it because he reminds me of me. <laughs> Complainer. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I could be a good Christian if just somebody else would help me. <laughs> so uh, there's a feast of the Jews and Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. So one of the differences between the synoptic gospels and John's gospel is that um, Mark's gospel, if you ever, you know, it's really short. If you ever want to just sit down and read it, it's very exciting immediately this happens and then Jesus does this and the next thing happens and immediately it's sort of breathless and you can read it, you know, if you're a quick reader, you can read that whole gospel in about 45 minutes. Okay, it's really short. And, and uh, the others, uh, Matthew and Luke, develop a lot more teaching and it's less of a narrative. Uh, John's gospel isn't so long, but it's got a lot of very difficult teaching. Um, but uh, the, the point of what I'm getting at here is that uh, in the synoptics, Jesus only goes to Jerusalem once, except uh, for Luke's gospel, where uh, he goes up to Jerusalem as a, as a child, okay? Uh, in the synoptics, during his ministry, it seems to last a year at the most. He goes up to Jerusalem for Passover and is crucified, and it's over. In John's gospel, he goes up to Jerusalem several times for many different feasts and at least three Passovers. So oftentimes we talk about Jesus dying at 33. You have heard that? St. Thomas Aquinas says when we're resurrected, we're, our bodies will be 33 years old because that's how old Jesus was. And that's kind of the prime of our, our physical life, right? Uh, for many of us, uh, we, we, our, our bodies aren't... Are, aren't middle-aged yet, but we, we're actually learning. We've learned a few things, starting to get wise. Um, but the, the way we get this number is that Luke says he's 30 when he starts his ministry, and John has at least a three-year ministry. Okay, so that's how we arrive at this. It's interesting, in John's gospel, there's an indication that Jesus might have been older uh, because the, the, um, he gets in a debate, and the chief priests say, hey, you're not even 50 yet. And if he's only like 32, uh, you know, it, it would be kind of a strange thing to say. So some people think, well, maybe he was a little older than Luke thought, or maybe his ministry was a little longer. Uh, but traditionally, we say he was 30 when he began the ministry. He was 33 when he was crucified. Uh, so he goes up to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there's a pool. And it's called in Hebrew, uh, Beth Zetha. It has five porticos. Uh, contemporary archaeology has, has uh, confirmed that something like this existed. Uh, there are many, uh, the, the author of John's gospel clearly knew Jerusalem really well. Uh, he has all kinds of information on Jerusalem that the synoptics <coughs> don't have. Um, so there was this pool there, and it was a special pool. There were a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And there was one man there who had been ill for 38 years. Uh, and Jesus saw him, and he knew that he'd been lying there for a long time. And so he asks him, hey, do you want to be healed? <laughs> Pretty you know, straightforward question, right? And remember, when Jesus enters into dialogue with people, he's looking for faith. And um, so he, he does what a good teacher does. He asks questions. And a sick man answers him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is troubled. Uh, and while I'm going there, I'm an invalid. Uh, somebody else gets there before me. Right? Uh, so the idea was, um, 
in, in this pool is that uh, from time to time, uh, the, an angel would come down and stir up the pool. And if you were the first one in, you'd be healed, right? And so this guy, I mean, if, if, uh, if say you were, maybe if you were blind and your hearing was really good, you could hear when the water was stirred up and you could get there faster than the guy who's, whose legs don't work, um, who's sitting on his pallet, who needs help getting there. So, um, so the guy says, yeah, well, you know, poor me. It's never going to work. I've been sitting here for a long time because I can't get there before the other people. So our Lord says to him again, rise, take up your pallet and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his pallet and walked. Uh, now, of course, it was a Sabbath and you're not supposed to carry your pallet on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do any work. Now, this is one of the big controversies throughout John's gospel is how to interpret the Sabbath. And uh, uh, again, literally speaking, Genesis 2 says that God rested on the Sabbath. Um, There are indications that the Sabbath rest in the law, which we usually count as the third commandment to keep holy the Sabbath, uh, is connected to God's rest on the Sabbath. Uh, However, it's also connected to the fact that uh, Israel uh, was a slave people in Egypt, and uh, God's a better ruler than Pharaoh. He gives everybody a day off per week, okay? And uh, the Sabbath is a time to remember that God saved them from that servitude, okay? And so work, uh, no work at, at this time. It's time for recreation, to be with your family, to be with God. Um, and the reason I bring this up is that, of course, uh, the idea that God would need to rest at all is, is you know, it's, it's a metaphor of some kind. God doesn't need to rest. Uh, God doesn't get tired. And Jesus actually says in, in John's gospel and in another couple of places that his father is, is working all the time. You know, God, God, because remember, God doesn't exist in time. Uh, God doesn't start a job and then finish it at another time. God is God and he sort of is everywhere at once and doing the things that need to be done all at once. So there isn't a sense that God needs to rest. Um, And so to understand the purpose of the Sabbath, uh, in the synoptics, Jesus says that the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And, you know, what better day to heal someone than on the Sabbath? But that doesn't stop the guy with the pallet from getting in trouble. Uh, so uh, somebody says to him, hey, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your pallet. And again, great answer. Um, he says, the man who healed me said to me, take up your pallet and walk. You know, why, why are you looking at me? I am not doing anything wrong. This guy, just, you know. Uh, as I said, this, this guy reminds me a lot of all of us, but certainly me. Uh, yeah, you're doing something wrong. Oh, I, I, this is, you know, sort of famous words in the monastery when someone is doing something and another brother says, why are you doing that? Well, I thought the prior told me to do that. <laughs> because you kick it upstairs, you know? Uh, so... Now, the man who had been healed didn't know who Jesus was because as soon as he healed him, Jesus left. And there's a big crowd around here. And so our Lord finds him again. By the way, this is an interesting thing that happens in many of these stories. That Jesus has one encounter with a person and then they separate and then they meet again. And they, they continue. So this is very much like our own spiritual lives. Uh, that we go through this kind of dialectic, if I could use a fancy word, where we, we have this encounter with Christ and then he seems to go away, or we go away, and we come back. Um, Song of Songs has many of these images. John of the Cross likes to use this kind of imagery. Uh, and one of the reasons Jesus withdraws is so that we learn to follow him, right? If, if he just stays here, we sort of get stuck where we're at. If he disappears, we have to go looking for him. We have to keep moving and uh, moving toward the Father. So, Jesus finds the guy again and uh, says, See, you are well. 
Sin no more that nothing worse befall you. So again, a, a great challenge. Um, it's so easy to forget the grace of God. It's so easy to forget the gifts that he's given us and to take them for granted, right? And so um, it's good for us to remember we've been healed, we've been baptized, we've received the Holy Eucharist, we've received forgiveness and confession. Uh, we receive our life at every moment from God. Um, but, it, but it's possible to lose that by our own heedlessness. So we should be careful. And again, this, this guy in particular, he's a good example of somebody who's, who's you know, kind of sitting on the fence, trying to have everything both ways and not, not committing to uh, faith in Christ. So what does the guy do? Instead of saying, yes, uh, or, or like, uh, I see that you're a prophet, like a good uh, disciple, the woman at the well. Instead of uh, continuing this discussion with Jesus, the guy says, oh yeah, there's the guy who told me to carry my pallet. He's the one you want. Go, go arrest him. And uh, so Jesus uh, becomes controversial, really. Uh, we, we already saw that Nicodemus uh, was afraid to be seen with Jesus during the daytime because uh, of the, the ruckus that our Lord produced in the temple at the beginning of his ministry in John's gospel. But now we see another point of contention, how to interpret the Sabbath. And uh, so when they speak to Jesus about this, this is where uh, what I was referring to a moment ago, our Lord answers, my father is working still and I am working. Yeah, it's the Sabbath, but uh, we're working still. Uh, so many of the Jews sought to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also called God his father, making himself equal with God. Okay. Now, it's an interesting dynamic here again. So here we have someone, he's already known to have produced uh, uh, prophetic acts. He's been in the temple, he's, he's cleansed the temple. Here we have him healing somebody. This is before the man born blind, by the way. That's chapter nine, we're in chapter five. So this guy who's been sitting here for 38 years, suddenly is up walking around and instead of saying, wow, we gotta check into this. Uh, when, when our Lord suggests that he has this uh, power because he's God's son, instead of taking that seriously, it's thought to be blasphemy, right? So we've got we've to get rid of this guy because he's, he's going to cause problems, more problems than he's already caused. What problems? <laughs> he's, he's healing people. He's doing things like this, right? But this, and I think this is, uh, it's a spiritual challenge for all of us, though. Um, you know, I, I don't want to just uh, uh, blame the people who happened to be there uh, and, and had trouble with this. Uh, I'll have to come back to this. I think uh, the best time to talk about this was when we get to Lazarus, um, how this affects us spiritually. So... Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever he does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. Okay, so God's work and the, you know, this, this healing is not simply... Uh, for God's benefit, uh, to, that, that God may be praised more, but that we can understand, that we can see, that we may marvel, that we may take stock of uh, what's going on. Four, this is very interesting. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Okay, so the, the idea of a final judgment um, had kind of coalesced at this time in Judaism, but we definitely get a stronger sense that there's going to be this final reckoning and that Christ himself will be the judge uh, to sort things out and put things back right. Uh, we tend to kind of narrow the final judgment. This is okay 
uh, to the separation of the sheep and the goats. And that's out of Matthew's gospel. Uh, but part of what we should, maybe the, the imagery we can think of is, um, uh, my favorite example is uh, the Lord of the Rings. So, after Aragorn, uh, after Sauron is defeated and Aragorn becomes king and emerges, uh, is pronounced king, he's got a lot of work to do because things are, are really messed up because of the war that's been going on, the War of the Rings. And so he, he travels around putting things back in order, making judgments between you know, parties that have disagreements, uh, appointing uh, persons to help carry out this work. One of the things that happens that you don't see in the movies, but it's an important uh, chapter in the books, is the scouring of the Shire. You know, so uh, the, the hobbits, the giant hobbits, go back to the Shire, and um, it's been turned into a, a big wood mill, basically, and, and they, they have to put things back in order, regrow the trees, uh, uh, kick out the people who've been... Uh, oppressing the, the workers and so on. And so this is what a good king does. He, he puts things in order. Everybody has their, their place in society and, and there's a peaceful coexistence, cooperation, etc. So our Lord as king and judge has this function to put everything back in right order, right relationship. And uh, I, I mentioned Dante this morning. If you, you know, one of the things that's, very clear about heaven and Dante's vision of heaven is that everybody's got a place. It's very beautiful because it's very orderly. Uh, when they sing together, it sounds great. You know, nobody's out of tune. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, but this is part of the judgment. The judgment is to refit things the way they were supposed to go from the beginning. So the father has given this task to the son. Um, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is a challenge. Um, I think uh, you know, a new document just came out from the Vatican, uh, Placuit Deo. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but it's, it's um, intended to be an amplification of some teachings in a, in a document that came out when I was in seminary, Dominus Jesus. Uh, and uh, it was controversial because... Uh, you know, in these days of multiculturalism and so on, the document basically said there's no salvation except through Jesus Christ. Right? That's the, the thrust of the document from 2000, um, written by a commission headed by then Cardinal Rautzinger. And uh, Placuit Deo is intended to um, clarify some things that Pope Francis has said with regard to Gnosticism and Pelagianism uh, as regards to the, the necessity of belief in Jesus Christ for salvation. And... As I say, this is challenging for us in a multicultural world, but we see it stated very clearly here. You know, if you don't honor the Son, you don't really honor God. Uh, and uh, now, how again, how God will sort this out for those who uh, have not received the gift of faith that we have received, we, we can't know entirely. Uh, but we should not be afraid to uh, speak clearly that belief in Jesus Christ is necessary and baptism is necessary and to assist others in seeing this, uh, that this honors the Father because it is the Father's Son who was sent uh, to save us. Uh, so, who hears, uh, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Right? So whoever responds with faith has eternal life. Uh, he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Mm -hmm. So, uh, recognition of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the one sent by God, uh, as the Son of God, this is, this is what saves us. And again, really important, if we believe this, we'll be baptized. You know, the, 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 way, the way to publicly affirm that belief is to go into the font, okay? Just like it's one thing to say, uh, what would be an example of this? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong libertarian, but I never vote. <laughs> um, something like that. You know, it, if, if you believe something, then you do the things that manifest that belief, right? So if you believe it, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is raised from the dead, you receive baptism. Like that's, that's the public affirmation of that belief. 
And, and if one isn't baptized, then you know, it sort of calls into question if you're serious when you say you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right? Um, all right, we're almost at the end of chapter five and we'll, we'll stop about 11, 12.30 or so. Actually, let me, I've been talking the whole time. Do you have any questions? <laughs> uh, yeah. How does the baptism that John did prior mm-hmm. to Jesus, mm-hmm. how does that relate to all this? Uh, what was that baptism? Yeah, great question, great question. Um, so John's baptism uh, was certainly to prepare for Jesus coming. Uh, and uh, it is, it's a ritual washing that indicates a desire to have one's sins forgiven, uh, a desire to repent, to change one's life, to accord with the law. Uh, and one of the functions of that baptism is when Jesus is bap- baptized by John, it's, it's the end of, of that the necessity is over because it, it reveals who Jesus is because he doesn't need uh, forgiveness of sins. Um, it's a prefiguration of his death and resurrection uh, and the, the first sort of public witness to his identity. Uh, so uh, John's purpose is to prepare the way, to prepare the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah. Uh, he does this through this, this ritual of baptism his uh, other purpose is to point at Jesus and say, uh, this is the one I was telling you about. His baptism is the one in, in the Holy Spirit that brings about forgiveness of sins. So, um, but that's, that's my two minute explanation. I'll, I'll say that, you know, that it's a big controversial question among biblical scholars, like what the purpose of John's baptism was. It's fascinating. We know historically there were disciples of John the Baptist well into like the fourth and fifth century who were not Christians. Um, and we see this in the Acts of the Apostles, that the apostles will go places and there will be disciples of John the Baptist who have not heard of the Messiah. Uh, but they're, they're being prepared in some way. And so they, they send the apostles out and they, they lay hands on them and they become, they receive the Holy Spirit, become Christians. So there's this preparatory work that John does, and his baptism is a part of that. Yeah, you want to help me out? Well, I never really heard of baptism in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the, it may have been, but when in Israel, the, they would have these little um, places to wash before you go into your room. Mm-hmm. There's some resemblance, something going on before yeah. John. He didn't invent that. No, um, you know, there are, there are several indications in the Old Testament of, so I mentioned Naaman the Syrian this morning. Uh, so he's told to wash seven times in the Jordan. And this is a prefiguration of baptism. Uh, when Elijah pours water over the offering when he has the contest with the priests of Baal, mm-hmm. uh, he, he baptizes the, sacri- the sacrifice, as it were. The other thing is uh, the apostles, when they go around to different cities in the empire, uh, they, they usually start with the Jews of the city and they usually go down to the river. And that's because uh, particularly the women would have uh, ritual ablutions. They would have ritual washings uh, that be- because they were far from the temple and couldn't get to the temple, uh, if you had to be purified uh, from menstruation or from leprosy or from whatever, uh, touching something unclean, a corpse, if, if you know, you're, uh, someone you knew died and you had to prepare the body, you were ritually unclean for a certain amount of time. And since you couldn't go to the temple to be purified, you'd go down to the river and there were rituals that uh, you, you went through that were much like baptism that would purify you ritually. So you could uh, be reincorporated as a full member of the people of Israel. So the, these are sort of the background practices of John's baptism. Mm-hmm. They baptized infants as well, or? Yeah, in a sense. I mean, the presentation of our Lord in the temple is, is in part uh, connected to that, though, um, uh, again, it was normally the mother who was purified, not the infant. Um, and uh, so I'm, I, I'm not entirely sure, but there are connections. And the fact that the children were, were presented to God 
Uh, normally, a firstborn, a firstborn male was was always had to be presented, um, but uh, uh, all all children were gifts from God, and so were were understood to be uh, at at root belonging to Him. Um, but but that's that's a great question. I, I can only give you some indications I have about the background of that. Uh, yes, Bob. What was the name of the document that you referred to? Uh, Placuit Deo, it's called. So P-L-A-C-U-I-T-D-E-O. So it is pleasing to God, that means. It would be online. What's that? It would be online. It should be, yeah. It should be on the Vatican website. They usually, these sorts of documents, they have out pretty quick. And uh, Dominus Jesus, as I mentioned, that would also, that's definitely on the website. Uh, and it's from the year 2000. And it's put, both of them are, are documents from the Congregation uh, for the Doctrine of the Faith, CDF. You. You're welcome. Any other questions on anything? How about circumcision? Circumcision is another <coughs> pre, that, that's, that's actually the, the best uh, Old Testament type of, of infant baptism. Um, so, because that, that definitely, that's eight days after birth. Um, and uh, that's to ensure that the child is a member of the sons of Abraham, right? So a member of the covenant people. That's your ticket to the temple too. It is, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's different from baptism only, well, Symbolically, there's a lot in common with baptism because uh, um, I, I, I've probably talked about this before. I don't have a chalkboard here, but um, if you think about holiness as something that radiates, so you have uh, in Israel, you have the temple in the center. In the center of the temple is the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where God is, okay? And to approach the Holy of Holies, you can only be the high priest that year and you have to go through a series of very complicated purifications. You can read about that in Leviticus 16 if, if you're interested. Uh, outside that, if you're just a regular priest, you can go inside the outer part of the temple and offer sacrifices, but you again need to be uh, purified ritually. In the, the courtyard around that, male Israelites or Jews who are circumcised can, can approach the temple. Then women are the next group around. Uh, then outside that, it's all chaos. <laughs> so the closer you get to God at the center, the more orderly, peaceful, uh, pure, holy, etc. you get. We have a similar thing in the, you know, we, we, we model this in a similar way in our church that you have the tabernacle, you have the priests, the, the deacons, the servers, the choir, the laity, the catechumens, the penitents, and then outside the church, it's chaos. It's, it's right? That's, that's the idea. <laughs> and so the reason I say this is that that, that line between being inside the covenant and outside the covenant in the Old Testament is circumcision in the New Testament is baptism. So they have a direct sort of one-to-one -one -one mapping there. Uh, but baptism goes much deeper. And uh, if, if I may say so, women are eligible. <laughs> you know, so women don't have second-rate status in the church as they would have in ancient Israel. Um, this is something, when I took Hebrew, I, we, we discussed this a little bit, but we didn't really get into, um, you know, uh, how, how in contemporary Judaism, the, the fact that only men are circumcised is sort of uh, dealt with. So I, I can't talk about that with any authority, but uh, it, it was a burning question uh, that, because that, uh, I was one of two Christians in the class. And uh, very interesting. Uh, so, so thank you. That's a, that's a really good uh, analogy. Yeah. So, yeah. I like to listen to the podcast when I can't uh -huh. make it out here. Yeah. Um, I can Great. hear those really good. The, the gospels I can't hear. I don't know if it's my computer or. You like the the homilies? 
Yeah, I mean the homilies, yes. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, because they're really yeah. low. Not like All right. Your too. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'll I'll check with Brother Gabriel. It's probably just a question of making sure the levels are high enough on the recording. You know. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Plus, it's you know, I I just have this loud voice, so maybe that's what we're gonna do. Yeah, yeah. You can all hear in the pews, right? The homilies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. I, I'm I'm glad. That's very helpful to know that that uh, you're listening. I know I, I should say thanks to John, too. He's, he's, he's putting likes on our SoundCloud account. That's very helpful to see. Okay. Um, so what else would I want to say about Chapter 5 before uh, we stop? Yeah, well, here. Well, let's finish up with this, this thing about... Uh, John, and then we'll go to Moses. So two things. Jesus is talking now to um, those who are criticizing him for healing on the Sabbath. And he says, you sent to John. You remember uh, back in chapter one, a group of people were sent to John to find out who he was. He has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony which I receive is from man, but I say this that you may be saved. You know, uh, there's a greater testimony than John's, uh, but you believed in John. So why aren't you believing what he said about me? He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has granted me to accomplish, these very works which I am doing bear witness to me that the Father has sent me. Okay, so these signs that he's working are greater <coughs> testimony than John's. Well, we know uh, he, he mentions that John was a, a burning and shining lamp and, and the people rejoiced in him. And I think this gets at some of the, the aspects of the question you asked. We know that uh, one of the sort of stumbling blocks for people to believe in Jesus is that he, he didn't have the reputation that John had for being this really strong ascetical firebrand. He, in fact, he did things that, that worried people, like hang out with prostitutes and sinners, right? And so um, on the, at the same time, he works these signs that, that a mere human being can't do. He heals people. He raises from the dead. He cures per persons who are blind, uh, etc. And he does these things in such a way, as I mentioned, my homily is to indicate that he's the same God who created the universe, okay? He's, he's with us. He's walking among us. And so these signs are meant to show us who he really is. But, um, you know, the, again, the difficulty, sorry to keep recapitulating my homily, but part of the difficulty is that this requires us to see that, um, you know, he comes to save sinners. And so we, we have to own that about ourselves to be saved. Um, and John, John can appeal more to those who feel like they're already righteous because so they see a kindred spirit. Yeah, let's, you know, let's be really strong religiously and so on. And not that we shouldn't strive for virtue. You know, I really want to be clear that I'm, I'm not saying we should be lax in, in our discipleship, um, but that, that, that can come with a trap <coughs> if we're not really careful to hear our Lord's uh, voice in these things. Um, that, and, and to recognize our dependence on him. And so whatever, as St. Benedict says, whatever good we find in ourselves, we attribute to the Lord and not to ourselves. And then we, we, are, we have hope for all kinds of people because uh, we know, you know I, I used to say this more often, but I've been, been in the monastery uh, so long, most of you don't remember me from when I was not a monk. Uh, and, and, and I just say, you know, if God can get me into the monastery, uh, it, there's hope for everybody. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't that bad, but in a way that, that was, was uh, part of the problem is, uh, you know, I, I uh, well, I just, I had no interest in being a priest or a monk when I was 22. You know, I, I wasn't thinking about it. Uh, I wasn't even going to church, you know. And uh, so if, if God could reach out to me, uh, lukewarm as I was and sort of disinterested as I was, you know, he can do this for anybody. Uh, but once I'm in the monastery for a while, and I started thinking like, hey, you know, I'm an I'm a, uh, ordinary of the church, you know? I get to wear a pectoral cross. I, I, 
I, I, can, I have to warn people about their sins and so on, this, this, and that. There's a danger there that uh, I can forget where I came from, right? And so this is part of what our Lord is getting at, I think, here. Last thing I'll just say, he ends this chapter by invoking Moses. And, and he's talking about his judgment again. Uh, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. It's Moses who accuses you. If you believed in Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is something at some point, you know, maybe with these Lexio classes that Brother Ignatius is doing, or maybe in a future um, oblate class, I can talk about the importance of knowing how to read the Old Testament spiritually. So this is what he's getting at. You know, this is why the church has always insisted that the Old Testament is scripture. Uh, to know who Jesus Christ is, it's really important to know what Moses wrote and to know uh, the history of the chosen people because uh, that's the historical context that our, our God chose to cultivate. Um, it's that people that God chose uh, so that his son would be a member of the chosen people. Um, but we have to read those stories spiritually. And, and Christians get a lot of flack these days for believing, you know, having feeling like you got to believe the Old Testament literally. And I'm more comfortable with a lot of literal readings of the Old Testament than maybe others are. But in the end, the literal meaning is never enough. Like the literal exodus from Egypt is not enough. We have to see the spiritual meaning of our exodus from this world of uh, the broken world to the kingdom of God. We have to see that that story about the chosen people is happening to us in a new spiritual way. And it's the story is given to us so we can understand how we are being rescued from uh, darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Okay, uh, we maybe three minutes if you have any questions. Yeah. Well, you, mm -hmm. you were talking about um, how John was perceived on that time. Mm -hmm. How much of that had to do with him being a part of a priestly family? Because his father was a priest. Yeah, right. Yeah, great question. Right, so John, John's definitely a member of the tribe of Levi. He's a relative of Jesus, but uh, uh, Jesus is part of the tribe uh, of Judah. And so, right, so John would have had the real priestly bona fides, you know, he was, uh, um, so that, that may very well be um, part of it. It, it. Another sort of historical fact about our Lord, which I find really interesting, is that none of the Pharisees or high priests dispute that he is uh, a descendant of David. So that's actually really important to recognize they all recognize that he could, if he wanted to, have a claim to the kingship, okay? And I, I often wonder if that's part of the problem, too, that they realize that lots of people proclaim themselves Messiah, and it's always gone badly for the people, you know? Um, and uh, uh, so here we have a claimant to the throne. And uh, as Caiaphas will later say, it's probably better that we just get rid of him because it's, it's too dangerous. And... Uh, they wouldn't have thought this if he was uh, a member of the tribe of Levi because the, the Messiah doesn't come from Levi. Whereas John, again, can be a, a kind of good religious reformer of the temple and so on because he's a Levite. Yeah, so good, good, good question. Yeah, Cherokee. Um, what's the church's official stance on how we're supposed to read the Old Testament? Are, are we meant mm -hmm. to read it literally or to get that second uh, spiritual metaphorical yeah. uh, portion of it. How is, you know, both, both, both in sequence. So uh, to get the spiritual meaning, we have to make sure we understand the literal sense. Um, and when we say literal sense, uh, it just by and large means just the, the literal meaning of the words, whether it's a, it's a story that's maybe meant to be a fable or if it's a telling of history. Um, uh, so it doesn't necessarily commit us to a strong uh, literalism in the sense that we have to believe that God created the world in six days. Okay? And in fact, from a very early time, the church has said that's, that's, a, that's a metaphor. But to say that God created and to say that God uh, created in an orderly way in different stages, that's spiritually significant. So we have to you know, understand when he says, when the scripture says, 
Uh, on the first day, God separated <coughs> the light from darkness, for example. We have to understand that what that means to separate light from darkness. So we no longer have chaos and just kind of grayish, whatever. There's actual definition going on here. Um, that, that illuminates who God is and how God creates. God creates by bringing order out of chaos and giving uh, individual things, essences, their places in an orderly uh, whole, right? So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot more I could say about this, but the, the short answer is we have to believe both. Uh, but the spiritual is more significant, right? So... Okay, well, we should probably stop. And thank you so much. It's wonderful to see such a big group here. And I'm sorry we won't be meeting next month, but uh, I hope many of you can be here for Brother Timothy's ordination. And uh, Father Brendan then will be uh, giving a talk in May. And in June, we'll come back together and do John 6. So our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Amen.